When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us D.J. Taylor. Mr. D.J. Taylor is one of the leading literary critics and novelists in the U.K. And today we are discussing his latest book, Critic at Large, Essays and Reviews, in 2010 to 2022, published by Shoestring Press. Welcome, Mr. Taylor. It's very good to be here. Why, may I ask, in this day and age, does anyone write book reviews? I ask this question as someone who has written book reviews myself, so I sort of know what you, the answer to that question will be. It's a very good question. Um, and in fact, I notice that... Um, Somebody on Twitter who had bought this book, this collection of essays, uh, and uh, tweeted a photograph of the front, the front cover, said that the kind of um, attitude to literature and indeed the kind of professional lifestyle that the publication of such a book reflects is, is, is as he put it, historical. Uh, <clears throat> to which I then remarked that, you know, I felt like a um, petrified dodo's egg found on the Mauritian strand. No, it's... Uh, I wonder whether the age of the book review is in decline. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I certainly one can't write at the length one used to be able to write for for daily newspapers. I mean, uh, throughout my I, in the past, I used to write. I used to write for the Sunday Times. I used to write for the Guardian here in the UK. Uh, and you had space. Uh, you know, if somebody said, uh, "Can you do us a book of a book of the week review?" Then you could perhaps get away with fifteen hundred, two thousand words, which is is quite a lot of space for a daily newspaper. But um, review pages are getting smaller and shorter. Um, when I began my career as a book reviewer, the London Sunday Times had an actual discreet supplement. It's 16 pages long, uh, run by a staff of four or five. And then every week there would be sort of, you know, two dozen book reviews in it. But, um, you know, length, lengths of, um, lengths of retreat. The only, um, the only thing that I find encouraging, my own personal point of view, is there seems to be much more space available um, in American uh, magazines and newspapers than there does here in the UK. I mean, I've noticed, looking at the contents um, page of Critic at Large, uh, with a selection of the reviews I've written in the last uh, 10, 12 years, um, several of them were written for the New Criterion um, in America, which I find a very congenial outlet. And people actually let you write at length. Uh, will give you some fairly obscure book and say, hey, do 2,000 words on it, which is, is a boom very much appreciated in, in the current climate. Who, if anyone, influenced you as a prose writer and a book reviewer? Uh, well, I have to go far back, I suppose. The, um, the, the literary journalism on which I really cut my teeth, uh, George Orwell's, uh, I was going to call them his collected essays, but they're not. Uh, when I was a child, when I was a teenager and first discovered them, Orwell's work was not had not yet been collected, and you came to them by way of four Penguin paperbacks called the Collected Journalism Letters, uh, Journalism Essays and Letters, 
Um, and I, I found those wonderful because Orwell was great at um, writing about something that wasn't necessarily going to stand the test of time. He was very good at writing about just some ordinary book uh, that people probably have forgotten about four or five years hence. And yet seeing the point of it and bringing something out about it and making some epigrammatic, epigrammatic remark about it that, that I found very congenial. The other thing, um, the other great influence on me, I suppose, was uh, when, I was at, when I was in the sixth form at school, that's about 16 or 17 here in the UK, I was a great fan of the English version of The Spectator magazine, which in those days had a very small circulation but had really seriously excellent people writing for it. People like um, people like Peter Ackroyd, who I think probably has some reputation in the United States, and then Oberon War, even War's son, who was a very uh, a very talented journalist. And they they wrote with enthusiasm, but they wrote with they wrote with ebullience, and they um, they 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 took no prisoners, and they were not sparing of established reputations. And um, it was a real education for me every Friday morning at the age of say sixteen be able to open the spectator and read some of these slashing critiques by uh, by people like Peter Ackroyd, which really gave me an idea of, of, of how you could write about books. And I was very influenced by um, Oberon War, who in fact, there is a, there is an essay in, in the book called Why, Why Do We Review Books? And um, Oberon War pointed out that the literary journalism is a very bread and butter kind of activity. Uh, you know, you're given a few hundred words in the pages of a newspaper aimed at people who probably are not particularly interested in books and you have about five or six hundred words to sing for your supper and so the, the average sort of newspaper critic is going to be judged uh, simply by the liveliness of his or her response um, you know you, you've got a very small window of opportunity to make your point to the reader and I, I think that, 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 that to me was an invaluable lesson to be, to be taught at that age Reading your essay on Trollope caused me to ask myself why he's such an attractive and captivating novelist, and will he be thought the same in 20 years hence? Well, you see, people have been writing off Trollope for years. Trollope ruined his reputation here in England uh, by writing, as you probably know, by writing an autobiography and he kind of, in which he, A, reveled in the amount of money that he'd made out of writing books, uh, and B... Um, outline the absolutely matter-of-fact way in which he went about writing them. Um, you know, rather than belonging to the Flaubertian school of revisers and writing three dual sentences a day and being proud of them, uh, Trollope would get up early in the morning, write for four hours before he went to work or went off hunting, and he would literally finish one novel, say, at 20 to 6 in the morning, have a cup of coffee, and then start on the next. And, and people who, who believe that, uh, you know, in, in, in religion's more sort of, uh, sorry, in, in literature's more kind of uh, you know, the, 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 being a kind of act of divine creation, that, that, that sort of thing, we're, we're horrified by this. I think, and I, so Trollope has been written off in this country. He's, he's very much below the salt. He's never been regarded here, uh, although there are, you know, large numbers of, of devotees of his and a flourishing Trollope society. He's never been regarded in the same category as Dickens or Thackeray or George Eliot or some of the Victorian greats. And, and I think that's rather a shame because I think psychologically he's a very astute writer. And some of the minor novels, you know, not the Pallister novels or the Barsetshire novels, uh, have a kind of psychological precision that you very rarely get in, uh, in Victorian literature. And it's almost kind of modern in the, in, in, in the depths of its obsessions and its broodings. And um, I, think he'll, I, think he'll, I think he'll hang on because there is, uh, you know, he, may, he may, may well not get the academic studies written about him, but there is a, core, there is a hard core of readers. I mean, I remember turning up once at the, um, 
being invited to talk about him at the um, at the Cheltenham Literary Festival here in um, here in in England, and wondering how many people would come. And in fact, Cheltenham Town Hall had eight hundred people packing it out, desperate to hear what we had to what the panel had to say about Trollope. So I think he's got this this huge underground, or at least I hope. I'm confident that he has this huge underground readership that will persist, uh, whatever you know, the, whatever the fads of, of, of higher fashion and fancy may dictate. In your essay on H.G. Wells's novel of social advancement, Kip, one is one is tempted to ask oneself: Isn't at at uh, bottom are not all such novels from whatever country the same? Could not have Balzac have written something similar in outline form to Wells's novel? I think that's a very good point, and I certainly find I the only the only thing I think the, the point I would make probably is that yes, um, when he's, uh, to me um, the, the the novel is a middle class art form, bourgeois art form, because it begins it's forged in the crucible of uh, personal self advancement. It's about largely about people, certainly in its early days, it's about people getting on in the world, um, perceiving things society. Um, and uh, the, the difference, I suppose, is the kind of social frameworks uh, that prevail in different societies in which the novel is set. I'm always very struck, for example, I'm a great fan of those huge, sprawling, what you would call naturalist, early 20th century American novels uh, written by Dreiser and James T. Farrell and Upton Sinclair uh, and Frank Norris and people like that. And the point um, about their, their struggling heroes which uh, which I think is, which distances them from uh, similarly situated people um, in British novels is that there's no social security system, and so if you fail um, in American life in the early 20th century, uh, as some of the characters in those novels do, you can literally die in the street, uh, you know, or end up dead in a Bowery flop house, uh, as happens to Hurstwood at the end of. Um, drives a sister carry, whereas in England, um, you know, you may struggle, but there is ultimately somebody, some part of the state panoply that will look after you. Um, you know, you may not be very, very happy at ending up in what was called the workhouse uh, in the UK for the indigent and, and people who were literally starving and had a job, but you won't die. You won't just be abandoned by the state. I mean, one of my favourite American novels is, is Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, um, you know, with the, the poor Oklahoma sharecroppers who end up in, in, in California literally starving, and they are told that the state can do nothing for them. And so at the end of the novel, they, they sit there, you, you, you know, there they are in the barn in the rain, and you're thinking, they will die because there is nobody, you know, nobody will, no, nobody has responsibility for them. Whereas the, the, the struggling protagonist of, um, you know, one of those novels of British social advancement from 120, 150 years ago, um, in a, to a certain extent, they can go through life with a, 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 a kind of elemental sense of security because they're not going to die. You know, there is a place for them to go. So I think that that's the difference between those kind of novels. Um, I get this sense too from 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 French French fiction of the late 19th century. I'm, I'm a great fan of I'm a great fan of Zola, uh, novel by the Drinking Den, um, Germinal, and and again, society in 19th century France was so constituted that there wasn't really a safety net at its at its lower rung. And I think this makes a difference to the psychology of the characters. Uh, and the way in which the novels kind of pan out. What exactly do you mean when you say that Woodhouse's novel, Smith in the City, has, quote, a terrific air of authenticity, unquote? Okay, well, yes, you see, I mean, most of, um, most of, most of Woodhouse's novels are 
are, are pure fantasy. You know, the Jeeves and Wooster books, all the um, some of the some of his other some of his sort of Hollywood stories. Um, although obviously they are to a certain extent based on personal experience, in that he you know he worked in Hollywood and he did know some of the kind of gilded young men he wrote about. He went to the Drones Club. And the thing is, though, <clears throat> he did work in a bank. He had to work in a bank, Woodhouse, at the beginning of his career, when his father lost his money and couldn't send him to Oxford or Cambridge, where he would like to have gone. And it, it clearly caused some kind of scar, uh, because there's a kind of... Uh, it's a, Smith in the City is about the only novel in Woodhouse's career where there is a faint sense of bitterness, and the bitterness is personal, in that Mike Jackson would seem to be playing cricket than, you know, sitting behind him sitting behind his park desk in the city. And it's one of those novels in which Woodhouse is, I think, one the only, virtually the only novel of Woodhouse in which he's bringing in a sense of his own personal insecurity. And when I say authenticity, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm judging it. I mean, Woodhouse was writing about the early, very early 20th century. I mean, my father went to work in an insurance office uh, at the age of 16 uh, in 1937. And he said that Smith in the City was recreated absolutely the atmosphere of what it was like to be a teenage boy being aggrandized, you know, be, being sort of tyrannized over by bank managers and senior officials, and the fact that there was nothing at all that you could do about it. It wasn't like being at a school where you could kind of mock, quietly mock or silently mock the person who was oppressing you. You just had to sit and take it. And that was the sense that, 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 he, um, that he derived from Woodhouse when he read it. Could it be said that Woodhouse has a political sense in his novels? And if so, how exactly? It's not an obtrusive one, but they are. I mean, I, I'm with Orwell on this one. All, propag all art is propaganda, although not all propaganda is art. And um, the attitudes expressed in Smith and the City say are very down the line traditional conservative uh, from the early 20th century. And there's a there's a rather telling scene, in fact, where um, Smith and Mike Jackson go to uh, go to uh, go, go to hear the go to hear the speakers uh, on a Sunday afternoon at, at Clapham Common. Uh, and, and are sort of chased away, chased away by um, have to escape in a hurry after they, they intervene when their, their their friend who works in the bank is, is having stones thrown at him. And Smith thinks it's the most natural, the most natural thing in the world to to, to bribe a to bribe a bus conductor, you know, uh, to, um, uh, to, uh, to 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 make sure that the police uh, don't don't investigate what you've just been doing. It, it's it's kind of seen as as the thing that a, a sort of a well-off young man would do. And it's clear to me that, that you know there's, there's a lot of Wood Woodhouse's this taste Wood Wood Woodhouse's preferences are, are naturally conservative. Uh, you know he sees the world in a, in a succession of hierarchies, and his and his and his and his money young money young men are there at the top of the pile. But I think you know that this kind of sense is, is implicit in a great deal of the popular fiction of the time. I don't think it, it, it's worthy of any particular remark. But no, I mean, obviously, Wood, Woodhouse reflects some of the, the social prejudice and hierarchies of the time in which he wrote. Well, it is true to say that Pierce Paul Reed is a Catholic novelist. What sort of Catholic novelist is he? Someone influenced by, say, Spark or War or Green or, for that matter, the early David Lodge? No, I don't think so. I don't think he's influenced by any of those. I mean, he's a much more old-fashioned uh, Catholic novelist. I mean, he, he seems to belong into a, a, you know, a category from the early part of the 20th century, I would have said, rather than, uh, you know, he's more of a, I don't know, a, a Chestertonian or an R.H. Bensonian. I mean, what, what I mean by that is that his solutions to, you know, the, 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 the dilemmas that his protagonists get into are so kind of elemental. So um, in, certainly in his early novels, in novels like The Upstart, for example, in the early 1970s, 
he'll have a character who is, you know, behaves abominably, uh, sort of uh, performs all kinds of uh, malevolent acts, and then redeems himself by just literally walking off into a confession box and, uh, you know, confessing and conversing and deciding to uh, deciding to, to live the rest of his life in a state of spiritual probity. Um, and from, if you regard novels as, you know, works of realism. This is a cop out. You you say to your, your your the charge that you would place put to read is that people don't behave like that, and that nothing in this character's previous life has led to the reader to suggest that he would behave like that when the chips were down and seek spiritual re redemption. But of course, the Catholic novelists come back to this as just to say, ah, well that's divine providence working itself out. So the Catholic novelist in really has it both ways. I mean, uh, I've noticed that, that it reads later novels. Are sort of less like this. They're in some ways they're even starker and more elemental uh, in their in their approach to religion. So I think he's a very I think Reed is um, a self-consciously old-fashioned writer in a way that um, for example I mean you mentioned um, you mentioned David Lodge. I mean I think David Lodge is probably more interested in what we'll call um, the social basis of religious belief these days, and uh, you know the the effect in, in which sort of Catholic beliefs and practices impinge. On the living of ordinary lives, uh, you know, like in his novel, the, the British Museum is falling down, in which the, the Catholic couple are trying desperately hard not to have a baby, and then and it's made into a kind of comic trope. But Reed is much more serious and stark and elemental, and, and I really, I'm not a Roman Catholic, but I, I love his books, I suppose, for their for their hard edge, for the the idea that life, you know, you you are you are sort of standing on a precipice between redemption and damnation. There are things that you you can do about it. And, choices are in your hands. Is there not something rather solipsistic about Alan Bennett and his diaries, or am I merely prejudiced, or perhaps that's merely the form of that uh, diaries take? Well, I, I think a certain amount of solipsism is endemic, uh, you know, to the idea of the, of the diary, but uh, Bennett, Bennett's diaries always amuse me, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm very fond of them. I think he's, an, he's, a, he's a great diarist, because he notices little things. Uh, he notices small points of detail, which are one of the things that I relish in diaries. Orwell does the same. Orwell's diaries are full of the absolute sort of minutest attention to detail, minutiae. But um, the thing that I think that amuses me about Bennett is the, uh, and which I suppose is a part of the solipsism that, that, that you, uh, you, know, you isolate there, is the complaining. He's, he, you know, he is a champion complainer. He moans about everything. Um, and, and the thing about the, the moaning is that he's always kind of doubling back on himself. So he'll start He'll start complaining, for example, about Andy Murray, the tennis player. And then he'll say, not that I take any interest in tennis at all. <laughs> so so he's, he's constantly kind of you know, sort of refining and defending his position. And always, there was a particular, um, there, there was a particular piece in those diaries, which I, which I mentioned in my review of them, where he, 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 he ends up in a kind of ecstasy of self-absorption about eating dates and the, and, and the way in which you eat a date and what a date tastes like and the dates that were given to, his, by, given to him by his mother back in Leeds in the 1930s. And, and it reminded me, actually, of an occasion when um, the very elderly Mr. Gladstone, you know, the distinguished Victorian politician, was, um, you know, was, was offered a bowl of nuts, apparently, once at a dinner, and he picked up a nut and ate it and then said, it is many years since I ate a Brazil nut. Or indeed, any other kind of nut, you know. And of course, Blaston being a famous man, people were, were awestruck to hear him talking about nuts. And I thought to myself, you know, this is simply an ecstasy of self-regard. Who cares about the last time the U.S. Brazil nut? And it, it, struck, it struck me there was a kind of affinity between Bennett and Blaston, those, those two things. 
is Inez, I'm sorry, is Inez Holden's obscurity deserved? Uh, absolutely not. I'm glad you've mentioned Inez Holden because I, I've been writing about her a lot in other contexts because um, I've just, uh, I'm just about to publish a new uh, biography of George Orwell and her relationship with Orwell uh, was uh, to a certain extent occluded in the past because it, it exists in a voluminous unpublished diary that very few people ever had access to. Uh, quite apart from her relationship with Orwell, she wrote some stunning pieces of um, wartime reportage, um, you know, not a sort of short stories, and novels set in factories and sort of doing, doing the war here in Britain. Um, and their and their reportage, you know, they're they're based on things she's seen and observed very minutely. But there's also a kind of impressionist sense to them too about some of the imagery um, and the figures of language that she uses. And I think she's she's been also very interesting in bestriding several different eras of British cultural life. She started off as a bright young person in the 1920s, um, you know, going to uh, going to high class parties and being written about in society newspapers. Uh, she had a time when she joined the Communist Party, about which very little is known. Then she popped up in the 1940s, um, you know, the friend of Orwell and Stevie Smith and other writers at the time. Um, and then goes on to write a lot of very interesting short stories, Punch magazine in the 1950s, which were commissioned by her great friend, Anthony Pohl. So to me, she's crying out to have a biography written about her, but I don't suppose it's, it's the kind of book that a mainstream publisher would want to subsidize in these, in these straightened times. How was the 60s, or what we think of as the 60s, reflecting the British novel of the period? Well, um, the, 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 something I've always, in, I've always been interested in, because it, uh, it kind of almost mirrors uh, some of the perceived social de developments of the time, is what here in Britain we call the anti-60s novel. And the anti-60s novel is written by people like Kingsley Amos, it's written by people like uh, A.S. Byatt, uh, it's written by people like Simon Raven, uh, not necessarily written by right-wing people, you know, it's written by liberals as well. Mark Bradbury's The History Man, you know, his famous satire of British university um, life, um, uh, it's an anti-60s novel. And it's a, it's a novel in which um, a person who is, or in the case of Amos, was a liberal, looks at the um, the social developments of the 1960s, uh, you know, and the proclamations of liberty and and freedom and self-determination and and, and 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 ultimately thinks that they are bogus and that rather than uh, liberating people and empowering, they're actually making them less power and making them less free because of the constraints that alleged liberty actually provides. Um, I mean, it was only it was only sort of starting to be realised, I think, at the time that um, yeah, you know, the, the new uh, sort of more permissive social arrangements, which are supposed to um, to give women freedom in the 1960s were actually sort of giving men the freedom women. And um, it's significant that a lot of these novels, the anti-60s novels, are set in the world of education, um, uh, where a lot of the new educational nostrils were seen uh, almost at the time, sort of, sort of, sort of fairly, fairly, fairly full. There's a, there's, a, there's a Kingsley Amos novel um, written in 1968 whose title, I think, could probably be sent, said to sum up this, this suspicion of, you know, the newfound... Uh, instant gratification and consumer materialism, and the novel is called "I Want It Now," which I think you know is, is a very pointed critique of Amos on that. Of course, Amos, of course, being a left winger who was moving to the right, a very significant category amongst British writers in the 1960s and 70s. What do you mean when you say that Orwell's 1984 is a novel within a novel? Do I say that? I think the. Do I say that? I think what you say is that uh, it's a novel which 
another novel is inside it, sne- trying to get out? Um, that's a very, you know, I'd have to think about that. I can't answer that off the top of my head, actually, Charles. No, it's, um, what do I mean by it? It's a not, um, I think what I probably meant by that is that I would certainly say that it's an unfinished novel and that, uh, had Orwell lived longer and had he been in better health and in different circumstances, it might've been a slightly, it might've been a rather different book. Um, what I think I mean by that is it's, it's got a kind of sort of hallucinogenic and um, I'm, I'm not medically qualified to, to be able to uh, you know, produce a link between um, you know, the, the state of Orwell's physically, physical health and when, at the time that he was writing it and what it did to its mind. But there is a kind of lurid hallucinogenic quality to that novel, which I think um, if he'd have had more time and if he'd, he'd been in a better state, I think it would have been... Um, it would have been a better, uh, well, I'd say it's a better book. I mean, it's obviously an incredibly good book already, but it, there's, there's a sort of sense in which it's, it, it, to me, it, it's not quite properly finally worked out. I, it, it's very difficult for me to define um, what I mean by that, but there's a sense that, uh, unlike many of the, one of the, the, the curious, really curious things about 1984 to me is how long it took Orwell to write it. It took him... He got the idea at the end of 1943, and yet it wasn't published until the middle of 1949. Now, a lot of some of that was to do with his failing health, consciousness of um, waning powers and stamina and all that kind of thing. But there's also a sense in that he was working out some of the the kind of intellectual underpinning as he went along. Uh, One can see some of the, the significant essays and pieces of journalism that he's writing between, say, 1945 and 1947 are feeding ideas into the novel. So I don't think he got the backdrop to it, and, I don't, and, and, and some of the intellectual arguments in it clear in his head before he sat down. And that's what, in some ways, gives it a kind of provisional quality. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it's fascinating to speculate what, what might have happened if he had more time to work it out. I mean, he, he, said, I mean, he was always very self-deprecating about anything he wrote. Uh, or, you know, several of his, what we would regard as his, his major books, he, he wrote off as failures and didn't want reprinted. Uh, in his lifetime, but he, he, what his final judgment on 1984, almost as soon as he sent it off to his publisher, was that he there were some good ideas in it, but he'd made a mess of it. So I think that's possibly what I mean by there being another book inside it, trying trying to get out. Would it be true to say that you have a sneaking liking for John Prescott, even though for me he appears to be much simply a updated version of George Brown? Um, I. He, that's an that's a very it's very interesting you should make that uh, the continuity because yes George George Brown is I suppose the Prescott of a previous generation um, although I would I would say that he probably um, he was probably a cleverer cleverer man I would have said Brown than, than Prescott and uh, Brown of course Brown's fatal flaw was his was his alcoholism which which prohibited him from um, getting to the to the Labour leadership and possibly even becoming Prime Minister in the 1960s. Um, I suppose um, I don't know. He was he was what um, my father, who was a um, uh, my father, who was a, a working class Englishman, and um, you know with a, with a sort of keen interest in what in popular culture. My father would have described John Prescott as what we here in England we call a yob. I just you, you, does that have meaning in that word in America? Yeah, we're somewhat familiar with it. Yeah, yeah, yob. Um, and, and yet there was a kind of and, and to a certain extent that. One, I, one felt sorry for him because one realized, you realized that he was very constrained by the role he had to play because 
um, in, in, in the Tony Blair administrations of the late 19th, uh, the late 20th century, the early, early first years of the 21st. Um, he was the man who, who was brought in to keep older elements of the British Labour Party on side. He wasn't a modernizer. He didn't wear sharp suits. He didn't talk in, a, in an elevated accent. He was a plain, he was the People's Tribune, you know, a working man from the, um, from the north of the, northeast, the Midlands of England. And um, he obviously found it very difficult to keep going because he, he I saw there was this constant suspicion, as often, often happens to, to um, People's Tribunes in progressive political parties. Uh, that he was kind of betraying his origins, that he was betraying the people uh, who voted for him. Um, but the fact was that, you know, he was also capable of making a fool of himself in public. And this is not something a politician can, you know, do too many times and, and get away with. So I, I suppose I must admit having some slightly conflicted feelings about, about Prescott. Very amusing to write about, though. I mean, that was a, uh, the piece you're referring to was a, a commission from a newspaper to write on the day that he retired from Parliament in 2010. So... Um, it was possible to sort of kind of um, appreciate some of his achievements, but also to have a little fun at the same time. You discussed the changes in the art of book reviewing in the last 25, 30 years. May I ask you, who um, in particular would you get up in the morning interested to see what he has to say about the newest novel in terms of uh, uh, existing book reviewers? Well, um, in terms of, could I make a distinction between fiction and non-fiction? Of course, um, absolutely. Uh, yes. Okay, well, my my favourite, I think my, my favourite reviewer of fiction here in the UK is a woman called Claire Loudon, who writes in the Sunday Times and for the Times Literary Supplement. And um, I think she must be, she's probably in her late 30s, something like that, uh, you know, obviously generations beyond me. And um, I like, um, because I like her writing, because not only is it lively, and not only has she read everything, you know, can immediately contextualise, contextualise what you read, but she's no respecter of reputations. And so she's quite happy. She, she will always very often take a contrarian view, um, which I always like. For example, the Times Literary Supplement asked her to write about Martin Amos's first novel, The Rachel Papers, 50 years after its first publication. And I think... Um, the presumption, if you asked a youngish woman to review that novel, was that she would take exception to it and find it sexist and, um, you know, uh, find all sorts of flaws in, in it from the perspective of now. Whereas she took a completely different line and said that she rather liked it and that it, could, it was capable of speaking uh, to a younger woman as here in 2023 as much as it was, you know, uh, reflecting the perspective of a. Uh, of, a, of a young man back in 1973. I like that kind of thing. Uh, the critic who's um, uh, the, the critic who's non-fiction reviews I would always would read first of all if I would say picking up the Sunday Times on a Sunday morning is is John Carey, who's an absolute veteran of the era. I mean, John John is I think is probably celebrating his 89th birthday this year. But his 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 um, his his reviews are still full of vigor and enthusiasm and. And discrimination. I've been I've been reading them for sort of I don't know forty years, but I, they never fail to um, they never fail to amuse and instruct me. And in fact, he published a collection of uh, a collection of his pieces, Sunday Best, only only the other year. I think both in, both in America and and the UK. So he's still going strong at the age of eighty nine. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? If I wanted one thing uh, for people to take away. Um, I hope they would think that I was an enthusiast, that I was genuinely engaged with the things I was writing about and wanted to convey to people the things that I liked about them. 
and you know, and sometimes the things I didn't like. And I would hope that they thought that as well as that, that as well as being enthusiastic, I was being honest in my reactions to to books. Uh, I think far too many critics, sometimes for very understandable reasons, pull punches when they're reviewing, and sometimes don't say what they really mean. I hope people would think that, by and large, I try to say what I really meant. On that observation, which I agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, DJ Taylor, for being so kind to speak with us today. This it's is... been a great pleasure to talk to you. Some very interesting questions. 